you probably never heard the name Bill Borden, uh, chances are uh, you wouldn't recognize this photograph. Uh, he's not a name a lot of people are familiar with, and yet uh, his life was a life of significance. He was born into the Borden family, which pretty much assured him of great wealth. It assured him of a, a lot of influence and rubbing shoulders a lot of uh, powerful people in his life as a part of the Borden family. And yet, uh, he chose a different direction. When he graduated high school, his parents gave him, as a graduation gift, a trip around the world. Now, how many of you got a trip around the world for your high school graduation? That was the family that he was born into. And it was during that trip around the world when he went to different stops along the way that he really began as a Christian to, uh, to see a real burden in his life for people to hear the gospel all around the world. Uh, he, uh, he, he decided as a result of that trip that he would become a missionary. At a very young, early age, he decided the most significant decision outside of following Christ. And uh, he nailed it down, and he was ridiculed for that decision. People would mock him for turning his back on such a, high, uh, a, a great, great fortune, turning his back on such promise and prestige and everything that, that this world would afford him if he were to follow his family tradition. And yet he decided, no, this is the path I'm going to take. In the midst of that mockery, in the midst of the persecution that would come, he wrote a little, little phrase in the back of his Bible, just two words that said, no reserves. He would go on to further his education after graduation. He would go to Yale University, prestigious university. He would continue his education there. Almost immediately from the time he stepped foot on that campus, his heart began to break for the depravity that was there. There, there was seemingly supposed to have been, at least in those days, somewhat of a Christian influence on campus, and yet he didn't find that anywhere. He found a lot of depravity, a lot of immorality, a lot of just embracing of sin, and his heart broke over that. Even those that were supposed to be teaching, you know, quote-unquote religion, uh, were teaching just a real liberal theology, a doctrine that didn't even line up with God's Word. And the longer he was there, the more his heart began to break. He'd begin, begin to be involved in campus ministry, and it would just explode under his leadership. And, uh, and, and yet that burden existed, and the mockery was still there, and people would still ridicule him. He'd graduate from Yale and uh, would have offer after offer after offer of companies and businesses and people that wanted to hire him and bring him in on the promise of great financial reward, and he turned all of them down. Every one of them he turned down, even his own family business. Again, he chose not to follow that course, and uh, he would write a second time in the back of his Bible, two simple words underneath no reserves, he would write no retreats. He would eventually go on to Princeton University, further his education yet again, and then he would leave for the mission field. He had a heart to get to China. That was where he wanted to go. He wanted to take the gospel specifically to the Muslim population at that time in China. And so he would leave the U.S. He would travel uh, by boat to, uh, on his way to China, he would stop in Egypt to further his education. The sole purpose for that was to, uh, to learn Arabic so that he could be a more effective missionary there on the mission field in China. And so it was while he was there in Egypt studying Arabic to become even a more effective missionary that he contracted spinal meningitis. And at the age of 25, Bill Borden, without even arriving at the place that he had set out to change for the, for the gospel, he passed away. They would find his Bible again at some point later. And underneath the two words, no reserves, underneath the two words, no retreats, were two additional words he had added, no regrets. You know, it's, it's hard to live life that way, isn't it? 
It's hard to live life without regrets because I think for most of us today, we, we, we have one thing in common, and that's that we can look back and we can see things that we've done usually, things that we've done, decisions we've made that, that really resulted in a lot of regret. You know, some of those we look back and we think, you know, I, I shouldn't have ever bought that house, you know, and some others look back and say, I knew I should have bought that house. You know, others, you know, would think, well, I, I knew I should have never asked her out, and Others say, well, I should have asked her out. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, the, the possibilities are endless. You know, we live life of regret. Maybe for you, your regret is tied to someone else's actions, and you wish you could have changed what they did, but they didn't. And you're kind of left holding the consequences of someone else's choices. But more often than not, it's the choices we make. You know, we look back, and, and maybe it was a, a weekend. If we could take it back, we would. Maybe it was an arrest. Maybe, maybe it was a, a choice we made that, that, that was some, some immoral choice, and, and now we're left with the consequences. Years later, there may be physical consequences. There may be, you know, internal consequences of guilt and shame. It's just, it seems as though regret to a lot of, to, to a lot of people is who they are. They look back, and they just regret. Now, here's the good news is that God sets us free from that regret. God sets us free because through a relationship with Christ, everything can change. In other words, when we come to know Jesus, we experience God's forgiveness. And Psalm 103 says that forgiveness results in our sins being cast as far as the east is from the west. And so God really, he does cut the ties of sin in our lives. He doesn't hold them against us anymore. And so there's no reason to, re to regret what God has already forgiven. God also promises his grace. Uh, Romans chapter 3 says that we're justified, we're declared not guilty by his grace Right? That's an enormous, enormously powerful truth in our lives, that by God's grace we are, we are declared innocent in His sight. The Bible also speaks of God's mercy, it, it, it speaks of His redemption, and, uh, and how through a relationship with Christ we're made new creatures in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, that the old is gone and new things are come, so that when God sees us, He doesn't see us stained by our sin, He sees us marked as new people because of the presence of Jesus in our lives. And so it is possible for us to live without regret. It is possible for us to live a life that is so yielded, so surrendered, so sold out to the person of Christ, that when we look back at all the things that we regret, we, we, we can find that God has, has completely resolved those. He's removed them because of the payment that Christ made for us. But what do we do th then with the, the tension that comes, knowing that there's still a possibility that we'll make choices that will bring more regret? How do we avoid that? How do we live in a way to where in the future we don't look back to today and say, you know, I wish I would have just done this differently. I wish I'd have never gone there. I wish I'd have never said that. How, how do we live life to where we truly have no regrets? Well, let, me, let me just give you a little principle, and then we're going to sift it through the end of 1 Corinthians. The principle is this, that a lousy start, regardless of where you started, regardless of how your marriage started, regardless of how your walk with God started, regardless of how life started, a lousy start does not have to ultimately prevent a strong finish. You and I have the potential, we have the capacity to finish very, very strong in our relationship with God, regardless of where we've been, regardless of what we've done, regardless of what we've experienced, a lousy start does not have to prevent a strong finish. And that's what Paul's going to begin to talk about here. As we come to the close of 1 Corinthians, we find that Paul has walked with these Christians in this church in Corinth. He's walked with them through a lot of junk. He has corrected a lot of things that they were doing wrongly. They had suffered the consequences of that. They were a light in the city of Corinth as Christians, but their light was not burning real brightly. And Paul, through the bulk of this letter, 
to them, he, uh, he spends the, the majority of his time really correcting things that they needed to correct, pointing out things they needed to see, and, and chastising them, honestly, for things they needed to know about, they needed to respond to. And yet as he comes to the close of this letter, when he gets to chapter 16, we're tempted to shut down because we're thinking, okay, here's the end. This is a letter. He's just going to kind of sign off. You know, weather's beautiful. Wish you were here. Goodbye. And, and we don't want to listen to the last part. But we find here in the last chapter, it's some of the best stuff you'll read in the whole entire book. Because as Paul closes out this letter, he's going to, do, he's going to say five things. And we're not going to read every verse in these last few, few verses here in this chapter. But what Paul's going to do is he's going to share five things out of just two, two verses here that if they'll only heed them and apply them, and the same for us, we can find that God somehow turns our lousy start into a strong finish, and we can finish well, very well, in a way that enables us to live life without regret. Well, in verse 10, what Paul does is he begins to kind of tie up some loose ends, and he talks about Timothy, who's going to be coming there to the church in Corinth. He basically says, when he gets there, treat him well, treat him like you would me, Paul says. He talks about another person, Apollos, there in the middle part of chapter 16, and how Apollos will be coming to Corinth at some point in the future, uh, whenever time allows. They would have all been familiar with Apollos. You don't have a clue who he is. You've never met him. Uh, you don't know much about him. They would have known him very well. Paul says, Apollos is going to be coming. You know, just prepare for it, get ready for it. He talks about how they need to be responsible to follow their godly leaders there in that church. You know, that, that God had put people there to lead them. They needed to follow their leadership. They needed to replicate their faith. And he also talks just kind of about the basic closing stuff. You know, here's what my plans are. Here's what I hope to do. And it is kind of that, that very end, uh, you know, where he just basically says goodbye. But sandwiched in there are two verses and five commands that are extremely powerful for living a life without regret. And so let's just go ahead and read verse 13 and verse 14. And we're going to move through these five commands one by one. Paul says in verse 13, he says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now when you write a letter, chances are in the middle of that greeting, in the middle of that closing, when you say what you want to say, there's a place in your letters, right, whether it's an email or a letter, where you're going to cut right to the chase, you're going to get right to the point, and whatever you're trying to communicate, you're going to summarize it, you're going to say it in, in a, a very simple terms. That's what Paul is doing here. He is basically summarizing everything that he wants these Corinthian believers who had messed up so badly. He's summarizing everything that he wants them to do. And he gives them these five commands. The first four of those have military overtones. I mean, they're very forceful words. And Paul gives them these five commands, and if they were to apply them, if they were to live them out, they would not only live life without regret, but they would see God's amazing work through their lives. So let's move through them. The first thing he says is to be on the alert. Paul says to them, be on the alert. Now, I want you to think for a second about the regrets that you have in your life, the things that you wish you could do over. Not the ones that other people did, you know, bad choices by your parents or someone that you trusted and they, they let you down, they did you wrong. I'm not talking about those kind of regrets. But the ones that you had a part in, the ones where, where we made a choice, where we took a step, and we're the ones who... who uh, have had to deal with the forgiveness and God's grace and accept you know, his, uh, his forgiveness in our lives. Think about those for a moment. And here's what I, would, I think I can be accurate in saying, certainly for myself, probably for you, that when you look at those regrets, those regrets would have been avoided, right, had we only been on the alert. <laughs> had we had our antennas up, right? Had we only had our eyes wide open? Had we only been thinking through 
the choices that we were about to make. Had we been on the alert, chances are many of the regrets that we have today would have been avoided. And so Paul looks at them and he says, I want you to be on the alert. You need to be very careful, he says, about the way you live. Now, when you look through Scripture, there are a lot of places in there where it tells us to be on the alert. A couple of things that it points out specifically. One, it says to be alert for the enemy. Be alert for Satan. Be alert for the devil. First Peter chapter 5 says uh, for, for us to, to be on the alert for him. Why? Because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. His desire in your life, when you think about the enemy, listen, the devil is not just some you know, far out thing, you know, that it's just this ideal that people have created to try to make us do good. The devil is real. He is a, a real being that fell from grace and ultimately has, has uh, uh, impacted the world in people's lives still today, obviously. And whenever he seeks to intersect your life, he does not want to just make your hair not do right to frustrate you that day. He doesn't just want to slow you down from the things that you're trying to get to, right? The devil, if he has his way, will ultimately seek to kill you, to devour you, to, destruct, to destroy your life, and to bring ultimate destruction to you the quickest and the best way that he possibly can. He hates you. And if you have a relationship with Christ, he ultimately especially hates you because of who you know and because of who you represent in this world. And so what Paul says there, he says to be on the alert. Why? Because of your enemy. He says be on the alert because of temptation. Temptation is like an open manhole cover, right? You're walking along, you're looking at the day, seeing the, the sights and hearing the birds sing, everything's good. You got all your you know, happy thoughts in your mind and boom, an open manhole cover and you're in the ditch, you're in the, in the gutter, you're, you're in the slop right before you even know what hits you. And that's the way temptation operates. And so Paul says to these Corinthians, who had wrestled with sin, who had embraced sin. He says, first thing, you need to be on the alert. You need to be on the alert. We've all got blind spots, every one of us. You know, I saw recently some car or some vehicle that's out that it has blind spot alerts now. I don't know, you might drive one. There may be like a hundred of them. I don't know, I might be just be a couple of years behind. <laughs> I don't get out much, I guess. But you know, these cars, they've been manufactured and they have blind spot alerts, which I have no idea. I cannot fathom how that must operate, right? I don't know if it just you know, it sends out a tone or something and you're driving down the street when there's a car in your blind spot, it's just like, ink, 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 which would drive me nuts really quickly driving across the south side, right? There's somebody always in your blind spot, isn't there? So I still don't understand, how do you create a car that alerts you to the blind spot? I mean, you just go crazy. I mean, life doesn't operate that way. It's not supposed to operate that way. We don't have blind spot alerts, but you have blind spots. And when you choose to be on the alert and you, you live with your eyes wide open and you walk in wisdom and you press in close to Jesus Christ and you live marked by his word and what you read in his word, you seek to live it out and you seek to apply it. Even the things you don't understand, if God says it clearly, you seek to do it. And when you walk that way and you let the Holy Spirit live his life through you and, and you begin to walk through life filtering everything through God and his wisdom, what happens is, is that you suddenly find yourself on the alert. And what that does is, is that, that really removes you from experiencing a lot of the fallout and a lot of the cost of making decisions without God's input. And so Paul says, first thing off, he says, live on the alert. Number two, he says, stand firm in the faith. Again, he's just summarizing everything he said in this book. He says, be on the alert. He says, stand firm in the faith. What does it mean to stand firm in the faith? Let, let, me, uh, let me explain what it means to stand firm in the faith by giving you the opposite of what it means to stand firm in the faith. The opposite is to compromise. I love sweet tea, right? I think I share that common love amongst some people here. 
I love sweet tea. I'll drink it for breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. Uh, I, love, I just love it. In fact, it kind of is dessert in a way. I love sweet tea. Now, there are ways you can ruin a good pitcher of sweet tea. One way that you can ruin it is to pour it out, right? That's, that's the quickest way to ruin it. You invite me over, hey, Brooks, you want some tea? Yeah, man, I love it. And then you pour it out down the sink. That kind of ruins it for me, okay? So that's one way to ruin it. Another way, a second way you can ruin sweet tea is by diluting it. Okay, you put one little measly tea bag in there with like two gallons of water. It's not going to be good tea. I don't care how much sugar you put in it. It's not going to be good. Why? Because it's diluted, right? It is watered down. It is not good. Here's what happens when a Christian who claims the name of Christ lives life on our own terms rather than following hard after Jesus. Here's what happens is we compromise our faith. Because whenever he is not first in our lives, inevitably we're going to find our place, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's going to be on our own somewhere where nobody else is watching There's going to be some scenario created where we are going to, if we're not walking close with Christ, we will compromise our faith rather than standing firm in our faith. And when that happens, when we compromise our faith, ultimately what happens, whether it's in our work, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our leisure time, whether it's on a weekend, regardless, when we compromise our faith, here's what happens. We lose our witness. We lose our testimony. Our light dims. Our voice quietens. We don't have the impact that God put us on this earth to ultimately have for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul says, as he's speaking to this church in the middle of a godless city, he says, I want you to stand firm in your faith. It does not matter what type of, of uh, uh, pressure presses in on you. It does not matter what kinds of temptation you may face. It does not matter how difficult it is to make things work with one another. He says, I want you to stand firm in your faith. Because it would be standing firm in their faith that would ultimately enable them to live life without regret. When you stand on truth, listen, when you stand on truth, it will often be very, very difficult. I'm not going to paint a picture for you that the Christian life is a bed of roses. It is very difficult at times. God demands much of his followers. But when you stand on his truth, and when you say no, and everybody else is saying yes, And when you walk this way and everybody else is going that way, it will often feel like you're swimming upstream. But I promise you, when you stand on God's truth and you stand firm in his faith and you do not live a life of compromise, you will not look back and regret that. And so God says, God says through Paul, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. An interesting phrase he says here, the third thing he says is act like men. Act like men. Not, Not quite sure how the ladies felt when they read that part of the letter. Um, I assume they understood what Paul was getting at. Paul says, act like men. Remember Superman? Any of you have a cape when you were a kid? You got hurt jumping off the dresser? (laughs) Yeah, Superman, interesting story, you know? Here's this this mild-mannered newspaper reporter, Clark Kent, right? Nobody really held him in high esteem. Nobody really followed his lead. He wasn't a leader at all. But don't let there be a phone booth nearby. (laughs) Because when everything began to fall apart, whenever chaos began to break loose, that mild-mannered Clark Kent would step into that phone booth, and he would come out a new man, wouldn't he? He would come out. He He would be stronger than everything else. He'd be faster than everything else. He was able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Why? Because he was Superman. And the thing that made Superman who he was was that when he would step out of that phone booth and he had the nice jumpsuit and the cape and everything that went with it, when he would step out into the world, here's what he would do. He would step into the chaos. 
He would step into the chaos of that world. If it was a meteor that came and it hit the earth, he would step into the chaos and he'd put out the fires and he'd set everyone straight again. Whenever there was a bad guy that would come in and they would begin to wreak havoc in that part of the world, Superman would show up and he would put that bad guy in his place and he'd provide safety for everybody and the list would go on and on and on. But the one thing that made Superman who he was is that he would step into the chaos, right? He was the man's man. He would step into the chaos. Here's the problem for a lot of us as men, is that if we take a step back and really take inventory of our lives, what we find is, is that we often do not step into the chaos. We often embrace a position of being passive, and we sort of let things happen as they may. Even though God's equipped us to lead, God has put something in us that is just a little bit different. He, he calls us to step into the chaos. Many times we step back from the chaos, or we just add to it. And wives don't want their husbands coming home. They wished they worked more hours. Because when you walk in the door, you don't step into the chaos, you add to it. And when things are going wrong in the workplace and you got people that are lacking integrity and they're doing everything they can to try to get ahead, to cheat the company or to do things that they know not, they're not supposed to do, and your boss, though you might not always get along with him or her, is just longing for somebody to do it right, there you are, you're just complaining and you're backbiting and you're adding to the chaos rather than stepping into it to resolve the issues there. You know, God, men, let me just say this, men. God has somehow hardwired us. Our personalities are different. Not everybody is upfront, vocal, in the middle of the, uh, you know, the spotlight and comfortable there. Not everybody is that way. I'm not that way. I'm much more comfortable in the back row than the front row. It's just kind of funny to me that God called me to preach. I think he's still laughing to some degree. You know, when I visit a church, I don't sit on the front row. I'll just, I'll just say that. But God has somehow hardwired us, despite the fact that our personalities are so vastly different. God has hardwired the man to be the man and to lead and to take a stand and to set the pace and determine the temperature. That's what God calls us to do. doesn't mean, ladies, that you don't have a responsibility to do that. You do. You do have a responsibility to do that in the ways that God calls you. But men, listen, God calls us to lead. And he calls us to love our wives and to, to lead our families. And he calls us to have hearts that break over what's wrong and to rejoice over what's right. He calls us to step into the chaos. He calls us to make a difference through our lives. He calls us to live lives that put Christ on display every single day, to not add to it by a bunch of complaining and backbiting and all this kind. He calls us to just lead to be like men. And what Paul says here, he says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. Oh, by the way, guys, act like men. Don't move the boundaries. Chapter 5, immorality in the church, you're all embracing it. Hey, well done. Good job, fella. Good job, immorality. Woohoo! Paul says, where's a man amongst us that's going to stand for what's right and just do what's right? And as everything's unraveling in this church in Corinth, you can read through the first 15 cha 14 chapters, I'd say, if you want. I think there are times Paul just, Paul just thought to himself, where, where are the men? Where's somebody that's going to plant his feet, lead according to Christ, and just be a man? Number four, he says, be strong. Be strong. I think there's a caveat here. Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 10. Paul would say to the church in Ephesus, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. It's not being strong in our own strength. Hey, look at what I bring to the table. Hey, now I heard this message. Now I read the passage. Now I'm going to be a man. I'm going to lead. It's all about me. No. Paul says you lead in, in the Lord. That's why it's so, so important that we walk closer with Christ every day that you're in the Word every day, that you're responding to the Word every day. Paul says, be strong.
and his strength, not your own. All four of those first four qualities, go back to 1 Corinthians, all four of the first ones have, again, military overtones. And then verse 14, he says, oh, by the way, number five, let all that you do be done in love. John MacArthur made a great comment. I won't read through it for the sake of time, but he made a comment as to how that last little phrase there, let all that you do be in love, how it's the balance of those first four. It doesn't mean that, that for us as Christians that, that we're dominating or that we're oppressive. It doesn't mean that, that we go in with an agenda and it's my way or the highway. No, love is what balances all of that. It's what keeps us with a heart of compassion as we make a difference in this world. And if we apply those five things, I think it can be rightly said, that if we're alert, if we're standing in the faith firmly, if we're acting like men, if we're strong, if we're doing everything in love, listen, that raises the odds that one day we're going to look back and live a life with no regret. And we'll live a life that made a difference. And we'll live a life that counted. You know, it's not about us and it's not about our church. But I think it's accurate to say that those in the Philippines are really, really, really glad that we go. And for the seven that made that trip and the ones that made it before them, there are Filipinos in that country, in that province, that look at those individuals and are perhaps as more grateful for you than anything else in their lives aside from Christ. You make that kind of a difference. When you look at the world we live in here today, when you look at the place where you work, the family where God's put you, the people who live you intersect, when you look at all that, God has put you there to make a difference. Not to look back and say, you know, I wish I would have just trusted him more. I wish I would have forgiven a little bit quicker. I wish, I wish, I wish. No, he's put you here to live a life that no matter how lousy of a start it may have been, to live a life that finishes strong. And it's those five things I believe that help us to do it. You know, the interesting thing about finishing strong is we don't know where the finish line is. Any other race, you know where it is. You can run a marathon, you know where the, ra- you know where the finish line is. You know how far you got. You got mile markers along the way. You run a race on the track, 100 meter, 200 meter, 400, 800, doesn't matter. You know where the finish line is. But in life, you don't know where it is. For some of us, the finish line may be 50 years from now. For others, it may be measured in days. Or less we don't know where it is but I do hope this that whenever my time comes and there's an obituary written about my life I hope that it's not filled with a bunch of stuff that talks about what civic groups I was a part of and where I went to school I hope it's filled with a whole lot more about a life that made a difference for the cause of Christ you can have your civic groups I mean not being mean You can have your civic groups. I want to know my life made a difference. For my kids. For my wife. For this church. In this community. And in the world where God has placed me. For you. That's up to you. Completely up to you. Because regardless of how you started. You can finish strong. And if you live life with reckless abandon. This world may look at you as they did as they did Bill Borden, and say, what a waste. But you can look back and say, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. Let's pray. God, a lot of people here this morning are Christians. They're believers. They follow you. 
Lord, I've been one for a long time, and yet I know that there are times when it can be so easy to lose focus. It can be so easy to drift, so easy to move off course. And there may be some who are here today that are Christians, and yet they're prodigal, they're prodigal children without even knowing it, or they're so far from you. And they're not living life on the alert. They're not standing firm in their faith. They're not acting like men. They're not strong in the Lord. And they're not doing everything with love. And Lord, I fear because the time may come when they do look back. It may be when they hit their 30s or their 40s or their 50s. It may be when kids come. It may be when they're on their deathbed and they look back. And I fear that they will look back with regret. God, I thank you that, that it doesn't have to be that way. Lord, I thank you that we have the capacity through a relationship with Jesus to have all of our sin forgiven, to have the slate wiped clean. I thank you that we can look back at the things that we wish we would have done over and know that because you don't remind us of those things that we don't have to remember them either. Lord, they're not who we are. We're forgiven. Lord, I thank you that we have the capacity to, to finish strong despite maybe what we would feel was a lousy start. And as we look back over things that we would easily do over if we could, Lord, I thank you that we can be marked by new choices. We can be marked by who we are in Christ. And yet, Lord, there is no guarantee that tomorrow we won't go out and absolutely blow it. And so we have to be alert and we have to stand firm and we have to be strong in you and we have to act like men and we have to love. And so God, help us to determine today if we're messing with stuff we don't need to be messing with. God, if we're edging into territory, we know where we don't belong. Lord, I pray that today that we'd chart a new path. Lord, that we would be people who go hard after Christ, that we would follow you with all of our hearts, that we would be people immersed in your word, marked by your word. And Lord, that these islands and this city and beyond would see a difference because there's a collection of people here who just stand out, not for who we are, but for who you've made us. God, I pray today as well for those who don't have a relationship with you. Lord, they may have come here for some reason today for the first time. They may have been here for decades, and yet in their heart they know they need a Savior. Lord, help them to know that it's not about doing better. It's not about trying to knock off these five things in a list and somehow you let them into heaven. Lord, let them know where it starts. So the journey starts when they yield their lives to Jesus, turning from sin and inviting Jesus to take over. Lord, help them even right where they sit today to make that choice on their own. So God, show us what we need to do today to apply this message. Lord, help us to be people marked by you, finishing strong, running for all we're worth that you might get glory through our lives. We praise you for what you'll do now in these next few moments, God. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.